Well, good evening. Good to have you here tonight. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. We're going to pick up where we left off a week ago. We uh, got a good start on the church age, and uh, I want to get right back to it. Since uh, we spent a couple weeks now already dealing with uh, the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel, talking about the overall plan of God from Alpha to Omega. And I want to just jump right back into it again here tonight. Uh, Part of basic doctrinal studies, and uh, some uh, will dispute that or, or believe that uh, some of these aspects get pretty deep, and I don't doubt that a lot of these things can plunge horribly deep uh, and do so very quickly. Uh, but be that as it may, I think on a, on a basic level, uh, someone just saved this morning needs to have a firm grasp on where they are in the body of Christ, the fact that we are church-age saints, and we are not Old Testament believers. Uh, Israel had a stewardship and will once again resume their stewardship. God's not done with Israel. But for the time being, we are in the body of Christ. We are neither Jew nor Gentile, and this is, uh, this is our good pleasure. So I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and we'll jump right back into our study where we left it off last week. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have tonight to assemble together. And Father, I thank you for basics. I thank you for the blessings we have to come together and review what maybe we've studied many, many times, uh, or not, as the case may be. Father, I rejoice that in studying these things, Father, we get a firm handle on ourselves and our own thinking, and also uh, different ways and approaches and methods and ideas for being able to teach others and to be able to explain these things to someone who just uh, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Father, open the eyes of our understanding, and I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I uh, like to refer to this chart. This is the fold-out diagram from the basic doctrinal, or from, I'm sorry, from the Plan of God reader, the ABC reader, the Plan of God. And in the back cover, you can unfold it, and you've got this trifold diagram that takes you from Alpha to Omega. And again, it uh, describes the world that was, the world that now is, and the world to come. Uh, in kind of a, an overall, really a threefold division that you would find in uh, in Peter's writings related to that. Uh, but we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And, and I don't want everyone to lose sight of that. Uh, it's, that's uh, a firm uh, point of contact that keeps us oriented appropriately, especially when this world seems to be uh, falling apart, all right? When this world is, is uh, sliding from bad to worse, we, uh, we have an anchor, uh, one that stands secure, and we can uh, be grounded on that anchor. So knowing where we are in the church, and uh, you see that on the screen, uh, the church right there, and uh, where we are, and recognizing, of course, that Israel's not done. God will resume his plan for Israel when the church is complete. And in large respects, we are a, a parenthesis, all right, an intercalation, if you will. Now, we are an age that's inserted, a stewardship that's inserted, while presently the uh, stewardship of Israel is on hold. I'm going to expand upon this tonight, but keep the diagram in your thinking, because you'll note the church has two ages within it. The church is subdivided. It's not just one great big stewardship from Pentecost to Rapture, that we actually have ages that are built within, and I outline it with two ages, all right, pre-canon, post-canon, or apostolic and post-apostolic, or the age of the apostles, the age of the local church, and that's kind of the, the, the labels I've, I've settled on. Um, but we do want to recognize that the foundation is different from the structure. And that's true no matter what building you're looking at. Foundation is different from the structure. And uh, foundation is not eternal. Foundation is, uh, is clearly uh, introductory. It's beginning. And then when the foundation is complete, you can build on that foundation. See, you don't keep rebuilding a foundation when the foundation is finished. You put a structure on the foundation. And right now, my hope is, my prayer is in, in 2016 AD, is that right? 2016? All right. Um, that we are in the finishing touches of of the church, that the structure is so almost done right now, it's just the the tiniest little elements on the very rooftop, the the final steeple that's getting put on the the church. Because as soon as the steeple is done, as soon as the church building is complete, then we're gone. We are out of here and not one day longer. See, my goal, I would love to be the evangelist that leads the last person to Christ that finishes the church, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Think about it. You know, think about the stories you could tell for all eternity, (laughs) you know? I like telling stories. I told an old army story this morning. Telling stories is fun, 
But think about that. If you are the evangelist who leads to, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the very final member of the body, then you're not going to have time for basic doctrinal studies or, or for anything else, all right? Because they're going to get saved. They're going to trust in Christ. And I can just envision this, right? You, you give them the gospel, and they, and they accept it, and they trust in Christ. And then, you know, I like to kind of start them off with some, some, you know, confession of sin and some introductory things about what to expect now that they're saved and why it's important to be in church and to, to get grounded in doctrine. Well, not going to be time for any of that. Because as soon as they accept Christ, I, I, I'm convinced of that. I mean, just boom, split second later, that trumpet's going to sound when the body is done, right? And, 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 and you know, it can't be, there can't be a significant delay of, of even minutes because, you know, around the world, um, the very next person who gets saved after that is, is post-church, right? Post-rapture, post-trumpet. And so the very next person who gets saved is a part of that left-behind remnant, a part of that left-behind uh, group that's going to have to face Antichrist. It's going to be a believing Jew or a believing Gentile back where once again, guess what, folks? Once again, there will be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Once again, there will be that dividing wall of separation. Once again, for the tribulation and for the millennial kingdom, the uh, the boundaries between Jew and Gentile will become issues uh, for any number of applications, as we understand it, in the uh, tribulation and in the millennial kingdom. Last thing I'm going to say as I leave this chart up here, um, it's not weird for the church to be subdivided into multiple ages. What would be weird is if it was not subdivided into multiple ages. Because, see, Israel had an age of promise and an age of law. It has a coming age of tribulation. It's going to have an age of millennial reign. I think even for three and a half years it had a, a little micro age or mini age of uh, the incarnation ministry of Jesus Christ. That uh, when Jesus was walking this earth, something greater than the law was here. So he was born under the law, but as he ministered, something greater than the law was here. And there was a unique age, the age of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And as he walked that ministry from the River Jordan baptism all the way up to the ascension, I think, signified that age say, or up to Pentecost, I guess, when uh, Israel was put on hold. Gentiles are broken down into innocence and conscience and human government. They had an unfolding series of ages. The angels, that one's a little bit different because we don't totally understand the angelic stewardship. Uh, We know that they were placed, we know that they served, we know they had a rebellion, we know they had a warfare, we know that the end of that warfare was tohu wabohu, destruction of planet earth. So however that was broken down into ages, we don't have the full information to be able to, uh, to delineate that. Likewise, the, the coming future dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times, what it is that we're looking forward to in the new heavens and new earth. Will there be different ages within that? See, I tend to think not, because that, that stewardship itself is called the age of the ages, and in, in a lot of respects, it's, it's that final stewardship before time is surrendered to eternity future. Um, but we'll say more on that as we get to the, uh, the fullness of time. All right. Picking up where we left off, I, I realized last week when we were talking about both Jew and Gentile, neither new nor Gentile, that there was a verse I was leaving out, and, and so I wanted to remedy that tonight, and then we can move on. But understand the church is neither Jew nor Gentile, but also we can say the church is both Jew and Gentile. And so depending on the passage you're looking at and depending upon the doctrine involved or the, or the concepts, um, you can use either terminology just fine. The church is both Jew and Gentile. And uh, we, we can determine that uh, from uh, Romans 9.24. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And so we are both Jew and Gentile. But even there, where we're both and, you'll notice we are called from both Jew and Gentile. All right? And so, although our calling is from both Jew and Gentile, is it really fair to still say that we are presently now, that we're saved? both Jew and Gentile? No, I think it's better to say we are neither, neither Jew nor Gentile. Ephesians 2 as well, verse 16 and verse 18. Um, again, it's, it's a passage that uses the both and language, and so I'll use it depending on who I'm talking to and, and what their hangups are, all right? I'll use it, and we'll talk about the both and, okay? 
but in talking about dividing that, that, that uh, wall of separation and tearing that down and bringing both into one, it says that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And so there's the language of both, okay? Both Jew and Gentile. But even there, in the language of both and, it's still talking about something we were brought out of in order to make one new thing. Reconciling them both into one body. And that one mystical body that is the body of Christ is something that's, that never existed before the, the day of Pentecost in, in 33 AD. Same thing in verse 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And uh, talking about both and, Jew and Gentile, and coming to the Father. But even here, again, we're talking about source, and coming out of that and coming to the Father. Um, I think it's useful for us to, uh, to consider these things, okay? And stay tuned, because trust me, we're going to get into this in some deep, deep issues by the time we get to uh, the book of Ephesians in, uh, in that Sunday morning and Wednesday night study. All right, but then we go to Galatians, and in Galatians it says, neither. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so, like I say, depending on the passage, we've got both and, but I think it's better to think of it as neither nor, all right? Neither uh, Jew nor Greek or Gentile, neither male nor female. Understand the position is a position in Christ, and it's a whole new man. Neither Jew nor Gentile. I was a Gentile dog till I got saved. Now I'm neither. Neither Jew nor Gentile. Say, I'm a new creation in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And there's a lot of doctrine that goes into this as well. I think the passage in Ephesians 3 is interesting because it does talk about us as being a heavenly people. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that's us in the body of Christ. We are the families in heaven and on earth. Say, that will be done in, in, on earth as it is in heaven. We are the, the dual locality, right? We talk about being dual present in heaven and on earth. We still reside on earth, but where's our citizenship? Where's our attention? It's focused on the things above. And so we are the family in heaven and on earth. And, you know, that's, that's a blessing too when you stop to think about it. Majority of the church is where? It's in heaven. We've got 20 centuries of church in heaven. All right, and only the present generation, the present living saints are on earth. But what's the ratio there compared to heaven, compared to earth? I think the, the, the bulk of the, of the bride is already in heaven. See. Now one text that I did not put in here, so I made myself a little note, is to uh, look at Galatians 6.15. And this is another neither nor. Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. Okay? And you can think of these expressions as relating to Jew and Gentile. Circumcision, of course, is Jew. Uncircumcision is Gentile. Interestingly enough, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what we are in Christ. We are a new creation. And uh, boy, rejoice over that. All right. Let me get on down. The diagram is useful as it shows you uh, the dispensation of the church with the age of the apostles, age of the local church. You'll note the stewardship is vested in what? The stewardship is vested in the body of Christ, in the ecclesia, the church universal. If you're a member of the church, then you are a part of the stewardship of the church. And, and that didn't change. When the canon was complete, when the canon was closed, when the New Testament was written, when the foundation of the church was laid, you'll know we, we transitioned from the apostolic age to the post-apostolic age, all right? In a lot of respects, we're already there as in the final writings of the New Testament. When the apostle John is writing, he is the last living apostle. And so when we get the, the ecclesiology of Revelation 2 and 3, we're getting that, that ecclesiology for the post-apostolic age. We're talking lampstands and stars, right? Lampstands and right-hand messengers. That's, we're, we're getting our, our ecclesiology right there in Revelation 2 and 3. So uh, it's important to note when we transition from the age of the apostles to the age of the local church, we're not changing stewards. The stewardship is still vested in the church, in the body of Christ. But there are unique circumstances that, that only appear in the age of the apostles. There are unique conditions and operating expectations in the age of the apostles that aren't featured in the 
age of the local church, all right? So that then becomes unique in that regard. All right, I'm going to skip down to where we left off. Uh, Clearly in Matthew 16, the church is future. Upon this rock I will build my church. The church was not in existence when Jesus was preaching Matthew 16. The church is future from the standpoint of Jesus' earthly ministry. It it is not Israel from the Old Testament. Israel is not the Old Testament church, and the church is not New Testament Israel. Flush that. If anyone ever tells you that, they've bought into this replacement theology, and it's wrong. Sadly, though, it is the dominant theology on the planet. It is Roman theology. It is, is, largely speaking, a Reformed theology embraces this. Orthodox theology. So the the dominant branches of Christendom today uh, have no use for future Israel. It's a very small subset that still identifies there is a future Israel. And uh, and particularly in dispensational circles where they really lock in on things and and do the best with, uh, with all these applications. So that's Matthew 16, foundational passage. Ephesians 3, foundational passage, is talking about stewardship or economy, all right, or administration, whatever you want to use. The oikonomia of God's grace. Ephesians 3, 2, if indeed you have heard of the oikonomia of God's grace. Another label, if you want to call it that, for the church age, for the dispensation of the church, is the grace economy. It is the grace oikonomia. And uh, even, you know, economy is useful because it, it sounds like oikonomia, and it's, it's actually where we get the word economy. It is a grace economy. It is a church stewardship. And it was a mystery in previous generations. It was not unfolded until it was unfolded in, to the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament. All right? And not just to the apostle Paul. I've got to tell you that too. You might encounter some of these uh, uh, Paul idolaters, okay? Uh, Mid-Acts uh, hyper-dispensationalists that uh, reject the Gospels and Acts or the, the Catholic Epistles or Revelation. They reject all that. They say, all oh, that's Jewish. The only thing we have for the Gentile church is, is Paul. And so they accept, they accept Romans through uh, Philemon, and that's it. That might as well be their own entire Bible, in a hyper-dispensational, um, unfortunate uh, understanding of things, okay? And, and man, that's sad, because then that, they lose out on so much that rightly belongs to the body of Christ. Um, anyway, Paul was not the only one who received this mystery, all right? All the apostles, all the ecclesiastical prophets, the mystery was revealed to all of them, as revealed to Paul, to Barnabas, to Peter, to James, to John, to all the apostles, Uh, We want to be clear on that. So mystery doctrine. Other passages to support mystery doctrine include Romans 16, 25, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, and 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. So we have the principle of mystery, that our stewardship was hidden. So we arrive to the present. Here we are right now in the church. And unlike history books, which can only look backward through time, we have in the Bible the privilege to look forward through time. All right. When does the church come to an end? What is the final destiny of the church? That too, by the way, is very useful in describing, in formulating distinctions between the church and Israel. Our destiny is entirely different from Israel's destiny. Our, our nature is different. Israel is Israel by virtue of a physical birth. We're, we're the church by virtue of a spiritual birth. Israel is an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. We're a heavenly citizenship. All right. So many other distinctions. We are, designed, we are not destined for wrath. But Israel has a whole lot of wrath in front of them. All right? Then there's a 70th week of Daniel that is still in front of them because they've only experienced 69 of the promised 77s. And there is a whole lot of wrath in front of Israel. It's necessary. The wrath is what's going to bring them to repentance. Okay? And so we have uh, vital concepts to understand there. What is our destiny? What are we looking forward to? Now, for the most part, prophetic studies are not basic, okay? Uh, We're going to keep it basic to, to, again, describe this overview. Uh, Prophetic studies are, for the most part, intermediate and advanced, but basic doctrinal studies will include short studies on prophetic matters in order to complete the Alpha and Omega overview. 
We at least got to know about the rapture that ends the church. We at least got to know about the tribulation that follows the rapture. We at least got to know about the coming kingdom, all right, both uh, before the, the destruction of the heavens and the earth and after. We, we, we ought to know the new heavens and new earth. Why? Because that's what we're looking to. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the stewardship God the Father never lost sight of, even though other stewardships have come along the way. There remains an unfulfilled promise pertaining to the conclusion of the church, and that's called the rapture of the church. And, and it's hard to classify, too. You know, um, I, I have a mind to take rapture out of eschatological studies. That eschatology, strictly speaking, eschatology, the doctrine of last things, is first and foremost, it's, a, it's an Israel study. The eschatos, the, esch, the eschaton, if you will, the, the last things apply to Israel. All right. Rapture gets lumped into eschatological studies because it's still future, it's still prophetic, it still hasn't happened yet. But ultimately, rapture is a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Right? 1 Corinthians 15. And so if I want to be extra technical about it, rapture is not eschatology. Rapture is ecclesiology. It's church. It's musterion. It's mystery. And, uh, and, and really, we would do well to just totally take uh, rapture out of all eschatology books, studies, courses. All right? We'll leave eschatology where it belongs, with Israel. And... Uh, and that, but I, I may not single-handedly overturn uh, common usage in, in in church history. So we should study um, the rapture. It is coming up. It is future, and I pray that it's tonight. There is nothing that has to happen before the rapture of the church. That is that is so powerful. Second Advent. There's a lot of things that have to happen. We gotta we gotta see the rise of ten toes. We gotta see the downfall of three of those. We gotta see the uprooting of three horns when Antichrist goes from a little horn to a big horn. We gotta see a regional empire that gives way, that conquers and becomes a global empire. We've gotta see a mark. We've gotta see all these things, and all of these things must precede. Armageddon. They must precede the second advent of Jesus Christ. There's going to be so many signs of the second coming, the stars are all going to fall from heaven, except for one star will remain. Okay, All of these are signs of the second advent. But there are no signs of the rapture. None. Zero. No signs whatsoever can happen today. It could happen right now. Back when I was driving the Mustang convertible, I used to think of that. I had a mechanic in... in uh, in uh, Oklahoma City, actually, I had to get the car repaired. But anyway, the mechanic looked down and he said, oh, I love those. Those are fun. He says, that's a rapture-ready vehicle right there. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Drop the top and there you go. It's rapture-ready with respect to that. It could happen tonight. And we should be uh, thankful for that. All right, so we get to look forward. There remains an unfulfilled promise. It's called the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. And the rapture marks the conclusion of the dispensation of the church and the resumption of the dispensation of Israel. All right? Now, I want to be key on this. If the church is raptured tonight, that does not mean that the 70th week of Daniel starts first thing tomorrow morning. All right? Because the 70th week of Daniel does not start until the many sign their, their seven-year treaty with Antichrist. However, what does start not just first thing tomorrow, but the split second after, is the resumption of the Jewish stewardship. Israel, the Jewish people, will resume their role as the stewards upon this earth the, the split second, a nanosecond after the trumpet sounds, right? In the twinkling of an eye, we are transformed and we are snatched up and we meet the Lord in the air. And with the church launch, all right, the second twinkling of an eye is Israel resuming their stewardship. And they remain the stewards uh, for that intermediate period of time in between the uh, until the, uh, the the treaty is signed and the seventieth seven begins. All right, and then through that seventieth seven and beyond that seventieth seven into the beyond Armageddon, beyond the millennial kingdom, beyond the the sheep and goat judgment, on in for a thousand years, Jesus Christ will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and he will reign from Jerusalem over Israel's stewardship to the Gentile nations, all right? The thousand-year reign of Christ. That's why, by the way, 
That diagram is different from, from a Schofield chart you might be familiar with or, or theme or any of the other pastors. Um, they, they like to make the, the millennium a whole separate stewardship. But I believe the, the millennium is an age within the stewardship of Israel because the Jewish people keep their stewardship for those thousand years. The Jewish people are ministering to Gentiles during that thousand years. And so that's why I leave the age of the millennial reign under that umbrella of the stewardship of Israel. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? All right. So we want to understand that as well. All right. There remain many unfulfilled promises pertaining to the unconditional and eternal covenants with Israel. Think about all the things that have not yet been fulfilled. Um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That happened. And shall call his name Emmanuel. When has that happened? He has never gone by the name Emmanuel. So how do we handle that? Do we write it off? Do we find a figurative way around it? Do we allegorize it? Do we um, ignore it? Pretend it's not what it says? No, it is what it says. It is a name that he will assume, but he has not yet assumed that name. In the time of his humility, he was known as Jesus. And that's the name the angel gave him. I think Joseph was such a man of faith that as soon as he learned about the virgin birth, he probably would have been very tempted to just give the name Emmanuel to that firstborn son because of the text. But Gabriel stopped and said, no, no, you're going to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So I believe the name Emmanuel is a name he will reign by. A lot of times a king takes a new name when he takes the throne. Uncle Matt becomes Zedekiah when he takes the throne, or other people get new names when they take the throne. He'll also be known as Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, and he'll have other titles as well. So many unfulfilled promises pertaining to the unconditional and eternal covenants with Israel. And we'll study those. So the tribulational and millennial prophetic studies develop those matters, and they help us to diagram the future age of, of tribulation, and the future age of iron rod reign. When Jesus rules, it was with an iron rod. It is an unpleasant reign. We'll be clear on that. It's also important to note that the time-limited iron rod reign of Jesus Christ does not satisfy Israel's covenant promises. Abraham was not given millennial promises. He was given eternal promises. The Davidic covenant is not a millennial covenant. It's an eternal covenant. The new covenant, it's not a millennial covenant, it's an eternal covenant. So whether you, well, I don't care, whatever covenant you want to study, from Abrahamic to Davidic to eternal to new, they are all eternal covenants. They cannot be fulfilled with a thousand year reign. They will be fulfilled beyond that, in the new heavens and new earth, with a never ending reign of Christ. That has to be understood as well. Something beyond the millennium must take place. And so what do we have beyond the millennium? We have the dispensation of the fullness of times. The summing up of all things in Christ. Okay. So now, as we kind of transition to these things yet future, these, these eschatological studies, understand, all of these are remaining unfulfilled promises to Israel, but when were they given? Most of them were given in the Hebrew Scriptures, in what we call the Old Testament. Some of them were given in, in Revelation. Some of them were given in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. But they were all given to Israel, and these unfulfilled promises must be fulfilled. There will not be one unfulfilled promise ever, when, when it's all said and done. Everything written of Jesus must take place. Okay? Now for the church, let me get back to the church age here for a moment. What remains what remains to be fulfilled? What prophecies do we have? What, what is there that, that has to happen first before the, the trumpet? Nothing. We have no future unfulfilled prophecies. There is no promise. There is nothing that has to happen between now and the trumpet. I think that's a, a, a significant distinction as well. Let's look at Ephesians 1.10, if I may. Ephesians 1.10, with a view. Now I can back up all the way to verse 3, and probably ought to, because this is one long run-on sentence, right? Famously. You ever have a teacher that told you not to write with run-on sentences? They would have hated Paul, <laughs> right? Paul would not have done well in that teacher's class. 
Roberta Hawkins with SA Fundamentals would have graded Paul very poorly. All right? Uh, but starting in verse 3, going all the way down, it's one long run-on sentence. Not only is it the longest sentence in the New Testament, it is the longest sentence known in existent Greek literature. And that's a large corpus of, of, of Greek literature. All the, the histories and tragedies and comics and poets and everything. There is no known run-on sentence as long as, as this one right here. In any event, these are all our blessings in Christ. And you'll note, and I don't want to get lost teaching all of Ephesians 1, but what I'm saying in this, God has done a lot for us. And, and we are blessed in Christ. Okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's what starts it off. And everything that follows is, is a catalog of God the Father's blessings to us in Christ, in the Beloved One. All right? Now, as God was doing all this, think of this powerful work of God. And believe me, he is not still resting. He rested on the seventh day. Day eight, he got back to work again. And he's been working. And in this church age, he works furiously. Our stewardship. One thing you've got to say about the bride of Christ, about the, the stewardship of the church, Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand while the Father is busy at work. Okay? Sit at my right hand until I, God the Father, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right, so it, it is an age of unparalleled patriological achievements. It's the Father who's at work in and through you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. We live in a stewardship that features an, an, uh, an unprecedented paterological application. All right, so we go th- down this list and we see all these things. And yet, in all of this, uh, He made known in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. All right? And so we have the purpose of God. We've got His plan. We've got His purpose. And it's not in us. It's in Christ. And the kindness that's here, we looked at kindness in the, in the uh, fruit of the Spirit, but we've got kindness, the kind intention which He purposed in Him, all right? With a view. I love the translation here. With a view to an oikonomia, an economy. Now, now keep this in mind because... The church is unlike anything that's ever been, and yet it's not the end game. It's not the end game. It's not the purpose. It's not the destiny. The destiny is still yet to come. This is a step along the way. It's a monster step along the way. Providing a bride for the for Christ is 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 huge. But the end purpose is not the church age. The end purpose is the fullness of times with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. By the way, kairos. All right, not chronos, kairos. And we'll have more to study on kairos in the Galatians material from 9.30 this morning and on into Wednesday night. Notice the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. We're not there yet. There's, the majority of this planet is not in Christ all right, the majority of this planet is not in Christ or summed up in Christ. We've got a whole realm of rebellion that's definitely outside of in Christ. All right. And you'll notice the all things is defined here as things in the heavens and things on the earth. We're looking for a stewardship when there is no more under the earth to ever remember ever again. It is sealed off and it is forgotten. Forgotten by us on the outside, certainly not forgotten by those on the inside. They're in there day after day, forever, in that eternal separation from the light of God's grace. But the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, that's what the Father's looking forward to. That's what we're looking forward to. Because it's according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not looking to the millennium. Millennium's a failure. Every age has ended in failure, and that will include the millennium. It's not until the fullness of times that we have a stewardship that ends in victory. When Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father, that God may be all in all. The first time ever a stewardship ended in victory. <laughs> Which of those ages ever ended in victory? Which of those stewardships ever ended in victory? When the angels handed over their stewardship, was it in victory? No, it was in rebellion. 
their stewardship was taken from them. When the Gentiles handed their stewardship to Israel, was that in victory? No, the Gentiles were in rebellion. God scattered the nations at Babylon and separated them across the face of the earth. And then he called one man to begin a, a holy nation. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the, the stewardship of Israel. How about Israel? Where's their victory been? <laughs> you know, first advent, they crucified the Christ. All right. And even the second advent victories... Are those Israel's victories or are those the Lord's victories? Now we're getting closer to Israel ending in victory, but the millennium ends in failure. There is a Gog-Magog rebellion that's demanding Satan to be released from the abyss, demanding Jesus to abdicate his throne. There will be, Jerusalem will be surrounded. We see this in Revelation chapter 20. Jerusalem is surrounded. The, the millennium doesn't end in victory. The, the millennium ends in failure. Fire comes down from heaven and God judges that last rebellion. And then he destroys the heavens and the earth. Brings about the great white throne judgment. Now, the only, you think, the church? Is the church going to end in victory? <laughs> Are you holding your breath for a great global revival in the church? Is the, is the trumpet going to, you know, when, when, gee, what did Jesus say? When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? You know, I wonder. Is it going to get down? I mean, we're told, you know, in the, as it was in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, faith was pretty thin. What is, our, what is the end of the church going to be like? See? I, I, part of me is, is kind of curious. If, if, if I do lead that last person to Christ, I hope it's a Saturday afternoon. I hope it's Saturday evening. Just only because I'm, I'd be curious. If uh, the morning after the rapture was a Sunday morning, how many churches are, won't notice that people are missing? How many churches will still be open for business and operating and running and everything's just situation normal? If, if, if there is such global apostasy in the last days of, of the church, will anyone notice a few missing malcontents, a few missing deplorables, a few missing primitive-minded, uh, Bible-thumping haters? You know, in fact, they'll probably be happy to see us go, man, good riddance, goodbye with them. And then they'll be all excited about their hero that's on the verge of, of being unveiled because the last uh, restrainer has, has gone, see. No, when I'm looking at all these dispensations, everyone ends in failure until 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. then comes the end when Jesus Christ himself delivers up the kingdom to God the Father that God may be all in all. And then the stewardship will be surrendered in victory. The reign will continue because Jesus can never stop reigning. But it, he will be reigning with the Father in a co-regency. He will not be reigning as a steward as he does for the thousand generations. We'll talk about that as well. So what remains unfulfilled? A lot of things remain unfulfilled. And, and the millennium can't fulfill them all. The millennium is, is temporary. The millennium is transitional. The millennium, I, I hate to tell you this, it's only a thousand years, right? It is, it is a day, and it's going to go by so quickly. The millennium is, in large respect, a provisional government under military occupation. If you think about it, he conquers. He, he's, he's Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord God of the armies, and he returns and he conquers with a sword from his mouth and he rules with a rod of iron. That is a, that is a provisional government under martial law. The millennial kingdom is under martial law and it's only transitionary until the new heavens and the new earth. All right? That's uh, a useful thing to consider as well. Um... Any questions on any of that? Any comments or thoughts? Or did I, I wait too long to ask for questions and now your head's spinning and I went too long? All right, let's get a microphone over to Doug and get a question over there. Um, yes, actually, I have the microphone up here. So if you would walk the aisle. Thank you, sir. No one has seen the Father, correct? Correct. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Will the Father always be invisible? 
I don't believe so. I believe we will see him. I believe in the resurrection we will see him, and I believe in the fullness of times we will see him. And wow. that's, that's, there's just a couple of inferences that we can draw. But we, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Now, that's my conclusion. Thank you. Uh-huh. You know, the, um, I realize this may be shocking that the millennium ends in such a failure. Um, it was shocking to me. I, I spoke at a conference in Spokane a few years back, a number of years back now, and titled my message, The Failure of the Millennium. And boy, did I get a lot of comments at the beginning, because I read it in the program, and I thought, well, what's this about? And then by the time it was done, I had a whole string of questions, and I had a whole, whole string of, of convinced pastors at a, at a pastor's conference that, yeah, it is a failure. It is a complete failure. And it's pointing forward to what follows. It's pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, just like Second Peter 3 says. All right? We're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We see so much rebellion. We see so much conspiracy. We see so much darkness in the millennium. That's all gone in the new heavens and new earth. No more sickness, no more death. The first things have passed away. There also remain unfulfilled elements of the Father's plan pertaining to the unconditional and eternal Adamic and Noahic covenants with the Gentiles. Keep in mind, the promises to Israel and the Abrahamic and and Davidic and New Covenants, they have a future necessity to be fulfilled because God said they would. And the millennium can't fulfill them because they're eternal. They have to be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. So too, promises to Adam, promises to Noah expectations of fallen humanity must be fulfilled. And um, that, that becomes important. I think when, when you study the command that God gives to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's a, that's a command that was given to unfallen man. In fact, unfallen and, and uh, uh, what do I want to call it? Unfallen and, uh, and alone man. This is pre-rib removal, all right? And then the rib is removed. And then Adam and Eve together are commanded to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Unfallen man and woman were, were given that command. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, well then, when will that command be fulfilled? Is this a purpose of God that he allows to be thwarted? Does he just kind of say, oh, well, they, didn't, they, didn't, uh, they weren't fruitful and they didn't multiply until after they were sinners, so okay, I guess I'll be satisfied with that. And God just kind of makes do with a plan B and kind of a diminished plan. What he really wanted was for sinless Adam and Eve to procreate. And they never did. I believe they will. I believe sinless humanity will procreate. That's what the thousand generations are all about. There's no more sin, no more death. The first things have passed away. And a thousand sinless generations of humanity will populate the new earth. That expands thinking in a lot of ways but i I think the only people that would object to it then have to stop and and i put it back on them and i say all right then if you don't hold to sinless humanity procreating for a thousand generations then what do you do with the passages that speak of a thousand generations you just dismiss it as allegory or flowery language what do you do and then what do you do with god settling for an unfulfilled purpose Because my Bible says no purpose of thine can be thwarted. My Bible says that every purpose of God will be completed. And if it's the purpose of God for sinless humanity to procreate, then I believe sinless humanity is going to procreate. My Bible says a thousand generations of sinless humanity will procreate. Those who love Jesus Christ unto a thousandth generation. And so we get larger things to consider, larger things to think about. All right? And, and for folks that have never read Trench, they've never read After the Thousand Years, they've never read Lark, Clarence Larkin, okay? They've drooled over the charts for hours on end, but they never read the text of Clarence Larkin. Uh, or they've never read James M. Gray, Dispensational Bible Studies. I don't blame you. It's been out of print since 1908, all right? Uh, it appeared in a Cleveland newspaper for two years from 1906 to, no, from 1904 to 1906, and then it found book form in 1908 and only had that one edition. It was not re-released ever again. Um, I don't blame you for not having read it. <laughs> a lot of people haven't read it. 
But this is what we're looking forward to, a thousand generations of sinless humanity procreating. See, it's not just Israel that has future unfulfilled promises. The Gentiles have future unfulfilled promises, expectations. Additionally, unfulfilled promises by the Father to exalt and magnify Jesus Christ require fulfillment beyond the time-limited iron rod reign. And so these are advanced doctrinal studies of the dispensation of the fullness of times. To teach all the detail of that is not basics. But to point to it, we can at least do that. Pointing to it at least gives us something to look to because that's what God's looking to. Remember? With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That's what the Father's looking to. That's what we should be looking to. Does all this overwhelm a babe in Christ? Maybe, but don't let it. The babe in Christ can grasp the overview or a framework. The babe in Christ can pinpoint his place in the framework. He can see Alpha. He can see Omega. He can see where he is in the body of Christ. The babe in Christ can be encouraged that all his future studies will properly fit within this basic framework. All right? This is, I think it's a useful thing. All right, microphone to the front row, please. You have a question? Okay. Comment, okay. Is it a supportive comment or a critical comment? I'm teasing. All right. That par- paragraph about the babe in Christ, where where I've been, I've seen a perfect example of what happens when people don't have the framework. They have no idea how to do Bible study. They have no idea what anything means anywhere. And they can go for years like this because there's no guidance there's no framework. There's no one teaching. So I, I firmly agree that belongs there. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Because you're right. Without it, the Bible is just this monstrosity of 1,189 chapters and 33,000, whatever, 210 verses. And it's just all this disconnected morass of whatever. And they can just start picking and choosing a verse here and there and just start preaching at random and end up with all kinds of confusion and, and, and destruction and, and trouble. So I think that the Alpha and Omega overview is, is, is excellent in that regard as a framework. Charlie Clough would also describe it as a framework you know, by which we understand everything. The life, the life, the universe, and everything in, in, a, in, a, in a framework as Charlie Clough has developed it there. So um, our, uh, future studies properly fit within this basic framework. The babe is now equipped to rightly divide the word of truth. And a babe just saved this morning can begin the very basic right divisions. Because a right division is just a straight cut, right? Orthotomao, a straight cut. And, and, and you just draw, a, you just start to draw your very first straight cut ever. And the very first straight cut ever can be as simple as law versus grace, legalism versus grace, works versus faith, Old Testament versus New Testament. It's some very basic, simple things to say, I'm in the body of Christ, not Israel. And just cut straight and say, all right, here's where it falls. In a straight cut, everything falls on the left or the right, and there you have it. All right? And in cutting straight, a, a brand new believer just saved this morning. If they're grounded appropriately, they, they start cutting straight. They start cutting straight. Let me share also, uh, as I have time, let me wrap this up, and then I want to share some thoughts that, that I've learned since writing this notebook. In summary, God has unfolded His eternal plan progressively. You know, Adam and Eve didn't get this whole plan of program, okay? None of this was was given to them in in Eden. And even when they got kicked out of Eden, they're given a seed of the woman promise, and they're not given all the things that then unfold progressively, that progressive unfolding. We have the maximum that's been revealed to date in the church, all right, in the conclusion of of the Greek canon, to be added to the Hebrew canon, we have the mind of Christ. We have the, the complete canon of Scripture as we call it now. Will there be a third canon in the millennium? Will there be a third, and, and will they resume writing in Hebrew again? Uh, how will it be in the millennial kingdom? Since it is a Jewish stewardship, as, uh, as was the age of promise, age of law, age of, of uh, incarnation. Don't know. Uh, there will be prophets, and so I suspect that maybe the prophetic message will be put to writing, in which case it could uh, end up in a canon, and maybe that Jesus writes it himself. He didn't write any scriptures in, in uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by, not Jesus. <laughs> All right. He wrote no scriptures in his first advent. Perhaps he'll draft the, uh, 
the new New Testament. I don't know what to call it, right? We have to relabel the New Testament if there's a new New Testament. I don't know. Um, anyway, back to the notebook here. Um, God has unfolded his eternal plan progressively. He has entrusted stewardship responsibilities, mostly in sequence. They've mostly been sequential. When the angels surrendered theirs, when the Gentiles surrendered theirs, uh, they, they never had any expectation of resuming it. Uh, when Israel surrendered theirs, it's best not to say they surrendered it. Uh, they didn't surrender it. Their stewardship was suspended, not surrendered. The angel stewardship was surrendered. The Gentile stewardship was surrendered. Israel's stewardship, the Jewish stewardship, was not surrendered. It was suspended. That's, so that's why I say mostly in sequence. The glitch in the strict sequence is the dispensation of the church, which exists within the dispensation of Israel during a period in which God's dealings with Israel are momentarily set aside. And that's Romans 9, 10, and 11. That for the moment, a partial hardening has happened to the Jewish people until, say. So a babe in Christ ought to be able to properly identify the stewardships of angels, man, Israel, and church. Also the fullness of times. A babe believer can be pointed towards the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And said, that's what we're looking forward to. And it's after the rapture, it's after the tribulation, it's after the millennium. It's after this present heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. So as far as that chart there is concerned, let me uh, again bring this out. As far as that chart there is concerned, even if they don't have all the subdivisions, if they don't have all the ages, if they don't have all the other events and so forth, angels before Adam, right, before Genesis 1-2, and the, and the judgment ended with Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. And then man, from Adam to Abraham. Israel, from Abraham, is still ongoing in a sense, but presently suspended with, uh, with the church. The church, from Pentecost to rapture, okay? That's Pentecost with 33 AD, by the way, until rapture. And then we resume Israel, of course. Not... Uh, I've got a linear diagram there that does not show Israel after the church, but it is, okay? And then Jesus Christ himself in uh, the fullness of times. And, and it was designed purposely, red and blue create purple, right? And uh, so if, if the Gentile stewardship is red and the, and the Jewish stewardship is blue, the church stewardship is purple. Uh, that is red and blue, Jew and Gentile in one, one uh, body together. Christ, of course, is overall. Jews, Gentiles, church, angels, uh, the summing up of all things in Christ. It's the summary of all uh, colors, if you will. The entire rainbow is his. The fulfillment of Noah's covenant promises are his. All right. I'm not going to surrender the rainbow. That's our sign. Even if there's folks that want to use it for their purposes. Okay? Stewardship of Jesus Christ. And a babe can grasp this. A babe can also absolutely grasp this. Let me uh, wrap this up. We'll come back next week with ecclesiology. But um, let's look at the um, uh, Great Commission, Matthew 28. And um, everybody wants to jump on the go and start with that. But I back up prior to the go, okay? I mean, it preaches so well, and you can preach go and get people all in a dither and frothed up to, to become missionaries and go somewhere. But, but go is not stressed in the Greek, okay? Go is an aorist part of simple, and it's really the weakest part of the verse that introduces the imperative and introduces the present participles too that are in that verse. But just to back up a bit, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. This is key. When he is raised, uh, and he, uh, on that Easter Sunday, and he rises from the grave, and he tells the women, he says, go tell my disciples. I'm going to meet them on that mountain in Galilee. All right? They got, they're supposed to go, and they don't. They, they stick around. They're hiding in the upper room, and he pops in in that upper room. Anyway, they, they finally do make it to the north. All right? They make it to Galilee, and uh, to the mountain which he had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. 
We get detail on that with Doubting Thomas and different things. But Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, I think verse 18 is, is, is huge in our understanding of the Great Commission. All right. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And the recognition that in the body of Christ, which is still a mystery here, but it is about to be unveiled on Pentecost, just 50 days from here, okay? Um, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We have a stewardship that is a bi-location reality. The church is bi-location in heaven and on earth. All right, we've got to understand that. Our stewardship, our operations, our worship, our prayer, our treasure laying up, our economy, everything is in the heavens and on the earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then it, de- it defines for you how to disciple. How do you make a disciple? All right, I've got just a few minutes to, to wrap this up here. But most of the books on the shelves on discipleship are not about discipleship. Most of the books on the shelves on discipleship are about older believers coming alongside younger believers and, and teaching them and coaching them and encouraging them and, and being an older brother to a younger brother, being an older sister to a younger sister. All right? And I'm not hostile to any of that. I like all of that. That all needs to happen. But it's not discipleship. We need to invent a different term for that. Because... Matthew uh, 2.0 is a verb, a transitive verb, that means to make a disciple. To make a non-disciple into a disciple. And if you take a non-disciple and you make them a disciple, then you are, you've completed the assignment. And the idea of, of, of discipleship beyond is, is actually violates the definition of Matthew 2.0, of making a disciple. The target for making disciples is non-disciples. All right? And then this passage tells you how to make a disciple. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And these present participles, unlike the aorist participle of go, these two present participles of baptizing them and teaching them, they show the activity of what it takes to mathetuo what it takes to make a disciple. See? In, 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 in simple terms, if somebody already is a disciple, you can't make them a disciple. Because they already are. Think of it as a verb of, of change, a verb of transformation, a verb of, of um, you know, of, 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 when you make somebody a disciple, once they are a disciple, that, then they are. See? And, and what I enjoy, and, and we taught this in the Life of Christ series, by the way, teaching them, what's the content of the teaching? What's the curriculum? What's the syllabus? And once it's taught, what is it? Is it to, to observe all that I commanded you? What is that? Is that every word Jesus spoke? Is that all the red words of the gospel? Is it? No. It is actually the content of the Upper Room Discourse. It is the content of John 13 through 17. We have our curriculum outline for discipleship. All that I commanded you on, the, on that night in which he's betrayed. When Judas departs and Jesus says, a new commandment I have for you. And he gives them a word. And that word that he gives them is in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He's walking to the garden and he's still teaching them this word. All that I commanded you. All right? It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the feeding of the 5,000. It's not the early stuff. It's not the, the walking on the water. It's not the, it's not the miracles. It's not the Galilee ministry. It's not any of that early stuff. It's that night in which he's betrayed. When it says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, that's a body of content that we can encapsulate, that our canon has encapsulated in what we call today the Upper Room Discourse. Get a, get a brand new believer grounded in that, in the upper room discourse, and, and you've provided them the teaching content to make them a disciple. All right? Microphone to uh, Mr. Dowd. You have 90 seconds. <laughs> okay, I, I have a statement, uh-huh. a lecture, and a question. All right, excellent. Um, the statement... Titus was told uh, these things speak, exhort, rebuke, 
with all authority. Yes. Let no man despise you. So this is the source of his authority. Um, Is making a disciple then simply leading someone to Christ? As part of it. Because it says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if there's if they're not yet saved, then clearly step one is they got to get saved. But being saved is not the end of the Father's plan. Uh, no, you got to abide true, in the Word of God to truly be a disciple. You separated uh, the making of a disciple from the uh, uh, ongoing teaching into two separate uh, categories. Right, because it's there's two participles. There's the baptizing them, and then there's the teaching them. Right. But you're not calling the teaching part discipleship, discipling. Both of them combined are what define the verb of matheituo. The present participle of, of baptizo and the present participle of didasco define the imperative of matheituo in Matthew 20. Then why is that not the uh, subject of the books you mentioned, which are not discipling books? I don't, I don't, I don't quite get it. Okay, I'll pick up on this next week. Okay, fine. All right. Thanks. Pick up on this next week. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness. We call upon you to open our eyes to these understandings. I thank you for all the blessings of what you've provided. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.